Morning, Bethel. All right, our scripture reading this morning is Romans 8, verses 28 to 39. Romans 8, 28 to 39. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 944. So page 944 in the Pew Bible, Romans 8, 28 to 39. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Romans 8, 28 to 39. This is the word of the Lord. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. Morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here and be with you all and worship our great God and Savior together. Um, so we are going to be looking at Romans 8, that passage that Tyler just read. Um, so if you're not there, if you closed your Bible after the scripture reading, you might want to turn back there. Um, so we're going to be looking at that in just a minute. So we have been working through Genesis. Um, we made it up through um, chapter 19, and we're going to pick that up again in several weeks, but we're taking a little break here at the beginning of the year this morning to just do kind of a one-off thing from Romans 8, and then we're going to do a short series called Come Follow Me, um, probably about five weeks on discipleship at the beginning of the year, and I think it's going to um, kind of fold in with some of the ministry evaluation that we're doing and you know, who are we and where are we headed and all of that. So you can be praying for that series. Um, we're going to start that, Lord willing, next week. Um, and then we'll be back to Genesis after that. At least that's the plan at this point. Um, but for this morning, we're going to look at Romans 8, which is just an awesome chapter. And these last verses, 28 to 39, are so packed full of grace and truth. So we'll only be able to scratch the surface, in a sense, this morning. But... Um, even with that, we're going to get plenty to, to uh, feed our souls. So one thing I want to say, normally we just have an outline and then we put the, uh, 
the points up on the screen. And if you noticed in your bulletin, the text is printed out in like kind of a weird way, maybe to some of you. Um, don't usually do this, but if you're going to see the flow of thought, if this is helpful to you, great. If not, just, you know, take your notes on the back and scrap it and just read right out of the Bible. But if it's helpful for you to see, for instance, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then, wow, it's for and against, for and against, for and against, all the way down through. It'll help you see what Paul is saying. So if that's helpful, great. If not, you don't need to use it. I certainly don't want anybody to get, you know, the feeling that you had when sentence diagramming came around in, in grade school and you started to, like, twitch, you know. So that's not the point. It's more so to take these words seriously and really engage with what God is saying because these words matter and they are powerful and we don't want to miss what God is saying here in this awesome book. All right, so heading into this new year, what are you sure of? What are you certain of as you head into this new year? What do you feel like you can count on as you head into this new year? Are there things that you're totally convinced of? Some of you might have some negative things coming to mind, like, you know, death and taxes. Or maybe you're a student and things aren't going so great, especially at school. And maybe you're just sure the fact that school's going to continue to be horrible. I mean, how many things come to mind that are positive when I ask that question? You have a little bit of Eeyore or like Chicken Little in you? So there's not a lot of things that we can be sure of in this life, right? I mean, we just aren't in control of much of anything. And the things that we are sure of are often not the most positive things. So here's the question that we're asking and that God's Word answers for us this morning. Are you sure? Are you certain? Are you persuaded? Are you convinced that God loves you? Don't just dismiss that as like a, oh yeah, you know, important kind of Sunday school cliche. Really, personally, are you sure that God loves you? Does that anchor you and govern you on a daily basis? Like you know as well as I do that that kind of confidence is not a mere intellectual category. It's something that's got to grip our hearts. And the question is, does it? Do you know that God loves you? Deep down in your bones, no. That's what I'm talking about. Deep down in your bones, certainty. And, and how do we know? Because we might know, but we also know how we struggle to know. So how do you really know? How do you become so sure and convinced? So maybe you need to ask yourself the question, do I believe God wants me to know and to be sure of his love for me? Like, are you convinced of that? That God would actually maybe have you here this morning for that very reason because he wants to increase your confidence in him. So Romans 8 is in the Bible to make us sure 
of God's love and commitment to us. So let's dive in here and just swim around in all this grace. So point number one, I am sure. We're actually going to begin at the end of the chapter, okay, verses 38 and 39. And here's why. I'll just, you know, let you in on how this sermon even came to be. So last week on vacation visiting, my mom, we visited a church in Knoxville because Ray Ortland was preaching there. And so you've heard me quote him before, and I saw, you know, it's not worth explaining how, but that he was preaching at this church. So we went down to this church, and guess what he was preaching on? Romans 8, 31 to 39. So he inspired this sermon. You can thank him. Um, if you're encouraged, if you're not, go listen to his, and then you will be encouraged. Um, I already put a link to it on the blog, and the blog is down in the bottom right corner um, on the website if you want to listen to it. I really would encourage you to listen to it. So here's what really caught me and, and got me thinking. At the beginning of the message, he read the text, and um, when he got to verse 38, he just drew our attention for just a minute to the words, things to come. So look at it here. Verse 38. Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come will be able to separate us. Nothing that you face this year will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Whatever comes at you this year, like, how important is, is it for us to know that? Because you don't know what you might face this next year, and it might be really hard. Like, how good, how important is it for us to know that and be sure that nothing that comes in this next year, this next, next week, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? I mean, I think that's worth pondering, slowing down, letting it sink in. I mean, don't you want to head into this new year, into each week, each new day, sure that nothing present and nothing future, nothing to come, will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? But as soon as I, we put it that way, I wonder if it raises a question in some of your minds. You might think, well, what I want to be sure of is that nothing to come can steal my joy or my peace or my security. I, I mean, sometimes I do, but I don't really struggle believing that something can separate me from God's love. That's not really my struggle. But what I'm really afraid of is stuff that's going to steal my joy, my peace, my security. Does that describe any of you? If you resonate with that, I, I can't presume to know why, but I think we ought to press into this a little bit and ask God maybe why we might respond in this way. So, one, you think it could be because I think we, we're all probably prone to want circumstantial control and security and things to go our way in ways that the Bible doesn't promise, that God doesn't promise. So that could be actually what we're more afraid of than being separated from God's love, right? That's actually what we could want more than anything else. 
Or could it be maybe that we don't value the love of God for us as we should? So perhaps if God's love is to us the infinitely valuable treasure that it is, then the kinds of things that often steal our joy and our peace and our security wouldn't be able to shake us like they do. Or perhaps you really do doubt God's love for you personally, and you doubt it frequently. You often have that accusing voice in your head wagging its finger at your unworthiness. And you don't like you very much. (laughs) And it's kind of hard to imagine that God really loves you. I mean, maybe it's easier for you to believe that God loves other people, but you look at your life and you can't say that you've ever been sure of God's love for you. So I don't know if those, one of those or more than one of those things resonates with you, but certainly if they do, if, if they don't, still this passage is for all of us. This kind of certainty and surety is so needed by all of us. And if we're really going to feel the force of these verses and experience that certainty, we've got to ask the question, how do you get here? Like, how do you get to this point of certainty and confidence? What creates that kind of certainty and security? And so, now we're going to walk down through the passage and see where it comes from. So let's start back in verse 28. Point number two, how do you get there? Look at verse 28. And we know, that sounds a lot like I am sure, doesn't it? God wants us to know things here and be sure of them. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So this is a precious and powerful verse, but also it can be a hard verse to accept and believe, especially for those who've experienced horrible things, the kinds of horrible things that can happen to us here on planet Earth. So if we're going to believe Romans 8 wholeheartedly, We need to know that it's not a cheap cliche that's out of touch with the realities, the hard realities, harsh realities in this fallen world. So let's make sure we know what it's actually saying. So we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How do we walk forward into this new year without fear, like almost this existential cringe. Do any of you ever live that way? Like just waiting for the other shoe to drop? How do you walk forward confidently in God, especially when we may face some really hard things? God doesn't promise to protect us from them. So we know something here that all things work together for good. So this is true for those who love God. That is for Christians, right? So we're Christians not because we're naturally more loving than other people. No, we love because he first loved us, right? So if we love God, if you love God, if I love God, it's because God first loved you. He first loved me, sending his only son to die on the cross that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if we love God, it's because God first planted his love in our hearts by his grace, by his spirit, as we heard the gospel and 
came alive and believed it. So this is true for those who love God. Now, we all might be aware of how inconsistent kind of roller coasterish our love for God is. So God also grounds this promise not just in our response, but also his eternal purpose. Do you see that? So this is true for those who love God, but it's also true for those who are called according to his purpose. It's the same group, but it goes underneath our love, which is often hot and cold, and shows us that this is true for all who are called, effectually called, the divine summons of salvation, of new birth, like Lazarus, come forth, you know, when, when God would, makes us alive together with Christ and saves us by his grace. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So if you are in Christ this morning, if you've been delivered from our natural kind of bent toward ourselves, loving ourselves, loving this world, and you now love God, albeit imperfectly, if you've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, then for you, God will work all things together for your good. It doesn't say all things are good. It says he will work all things together for good. And we should know this. God wants us to know this. He wants us to be sure of it. So, again, we might ask, how do we know? How can this promise be true? How does it get fulfilled? So Paul goes on to answer these questions. So if you're looking at the bulletin outline, you see point two A, B, C, D, E, okay? Just see where I'm headed here. It's not a perfect metaphor for the passage, but as I wrestled through these verses and thought about how to make clear the incredible security and certainty that God is communicating to us here, I thought it might be helpful to picture God himself as our safe haven. Okay? So he is, Psalms speak of this often, he's like a refuge for us, a fortress. He's a safe haven. So let's see how this passage kind of paints that picture of our safety and security so that we can face this year and each new day with, with God as our security and without fear. So first the bedrock. Look at verses 29 and 30. How do we know that God works all things for good for his children? Here's how. Because for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So theologians have spoken for a long time about this section as the golden chain of salvation. There's no break in this chain, right? Or to change the metaphor, no one falls through the cracks. So how about this for bedrock-grade security and stability? Those whom God has set his foreknowing, electing love in eternity past, he's also predestined, so he determined ahead of time, to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn of a whole vast family of God's children from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. Again, that's that divine summons, like Paul on Damascus Road, just stopping him in his tracks and saving him, just awakening, awakening him to reality and changing his heart on, on a dime like that. It's happened to many of us in this room. We could give testimony to, to when the lights came on and when this truth became real to us. So, those whom he effectually called, he also justified. So this is the courtroom of the judge of all the earth, the only courtroom that really matters. So we, in our sin, we're all guilty. Our conscience gives testimony. We've all broken God's law. We've all fallen short of his glory. And before the judge of all the earth, what do we deserve? We deserve the guilty verdict. And we've got no appeal. But because of Jesus, because in his great love he sends Jesus to be substitutionary sacrifice in our place, on the cross, taking our sin and giving us his righteousness, if we're trusting in Jesus, there is someone standing beside us in the courtroom. We have a defense attorney. We have an advocate beside us. And so, if we are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the, the verdict, the gavel falls, the verdict is not guilty. The case is closed. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, you are not on trial with God. You don't have to be uncertain of Him as you head into this year each and every day. You can know that the case is closed and you are safe and secure in Christ. So, so many people around you are going to treat you not like God treats you. <laughs> You're going to be on trial with them. They're going to be operating like this with you. And we get, that's so normal, it's like the air we breathe, that we can project that onto God, and that's not the way He relates to us. He goes all in with us from the get-go. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us not because we were lovable, but in order to make us lovely by his grace. So Jesus was already tried and found guilty and executed in your place for your sins, like 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there is therefore now no condemnation. Case is closed. There is no higher court than this that can reverse the decision. So we can move on in freedom and confidence. We sin again, of course. He died for that. That doesn't mean we're flipping about our sin. It means we are confident of his grace and his commitment to us. So we confess our sins, and we know, we're confident, we're sure that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And those whom he justified, Tyler mentioned it in his prayer, he also glorified. Past tense, it's so certain that it is already done. It is finished, like Jesus said on the cross. So it is so certain, there's no break in this chain. Paul can speak of glorification as past tense. 
Is that good news? <laughs> That's really good news. That is the good that 828 is talking about as far as everything being worked together for good. So we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ and we will one day be glorified and fully bear the image of Jesus. When we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. That's the good that everything is being worked for. So God doesn't work all things for our health and wealth and prosperity. He doesn't work all things together for our comfort and safety and ease. God works all things together for our good to conform us to Jesus' image in this life and then to glorify us like Christ when he returns also that we might dwell with him in complete newness with fullness of joy forevermore. So do you see why this is the bedrock upon which these promises are built? I mean, aren't you glad that there's footing beneath your feet? We need to feel this footing regularly and be grateful and rejoice. But God doesn't just leave us on bare bedrock, you know, kind of just out in the elements. He's built a glorious, safe haven for us, okay? So let's look at the foundation. It is beautifully solid and unshakable. So you'll notice that we're skipping verse 31. So brief little explanation why. 29 to 30, you might want to look at the, the passage on the sheet so you can follow along here. 29 to 30 are the bedrock, but they don't even mention the cross, <laughs> Right? So they assume the work of Christ at the cross that activated that golden chain for us in real time. So 29 to 30 are why Jesus came. Jesus came so that we could be justified and glorified, so God's eternal purposes could be accomplished. Jesus came and died and rose again so that verse 31 could be true, that God would be for us and not against us. And so 32 is actually the foundation of our safety and security in God. Does that make sense? Just tracking? Yes? No? Okay. So let's look at this foundation. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So... How in the world are we guilty sinners going to be justified? How in the world is God going to be for us and not against us? Because naturally, we're prideful, selfish, rebellious sinners, right? Well, it's all because of this, because of the giving of his son. And this is an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? So it operates like this. If God can, you know, create billions of stars and he could just flick planet Earth, you know, a hundred gazillion light years away, like that, do you think he could lift a five-pound rock? Of course. Argument from the lesser to the greater. Or if you have some wealthy friend or family member who has a history of generosity with you, who loves to do it and never is secretly kind of keeping score of her generosity, do you think that that friend, if you're over in line at Rite Aid, and the bill is 10.01, and you have a 10 spot, but you need a penny so you don't have to get like 99 cents in change. If you ask, hey, do you have a penny? Do you think they're going to be like, oh, giving you a penny? No, that's crazy, right? If 
They've been super generous in all these other ways. Why would they begrudge you a penny? Well, if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up willingly for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So you can listen to Ray's message. Um, I also was reminded um, in preparing that he wrote a book on Romans 8. It's called Supernatural Living for Natural People. This is the old cover. The new cover is much cooler. It's got this like buff dude that's hanging like this um, in the shape of a cross. So anyway, I'd encourage that book. Great meditation on Romans 8. Um, so I, I looked at the chapter on this section, and I love how he puts it here. Listen to this quote. We may wonder how far God will go with us. At what point might God say, I'm fed up with you. The deal's off. What is the extent, the very outer limit of God's love for you and me? Before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, when God was framing his eternal decrees, he did not say, I will love them by giving them a fruitful creation, splendid bodies, keen minds, happy children, meaningful tasks, but I will not part with my son for them. That's asking too much, especially for them. Nobody gets my son. God did not say that. It is not in his heart to be that way. God is rich in mercy, and God is a big spender. He delivered up his own son for us all. Therefore, God's love for you has no outer limit. We are the ones who measure out our love in a calculating way, pennies at a time, always careful not to give away too much. But God does not love that way. God is glorified by lavishing his mercies upon us without regard for the cost to himself. In other words, if God gave us his most generous gift at the cross, how could he possibly begrudge us or nickel and dime us now? So, do you believe that wholeheartedly? And are you sure of it? Or is there a little bit of, like, uh, do you chafe at that at all? Like, well, if I'm honest, I mean, I've certainly asked for some selfish things, and maybe I'm glad, and I understand he didn't answer that. But I've also asked for things that, they're good things, like they're things that people pray about in the Bible. Good desires. I've been asking for some things for years, and it doesn't seem like he's answering. So what does this graciously give us all things? Well, let the context qualify what's being said here. This is in the context of verses 28 to 30. So the all things are the all things needed to conform us to the image of his son and to keep us all the way home until we're glorified and fully renewed. So all the things necessary to see his good work carried through to completion. So don't yield to suspicion and skepticism and cynicism here. We've got to trust this sovereign God whose thoughts are not our heart, our thoughts, whose ways are infinitely higher than our ways, whose thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts and wiser. And so we can believe the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want for anything that I need to be conformed to the image of Jesus and kept until I am finally and fully made new forever. 
So our lives are built on the bedrock of that golden chain, 8, 29 to 30. We can, just, we can jump up and down all we want and feel how solid it is. And the foundation of this safe haven is the lavish love of God in Christ. He's willing. He wholeheartedly gave His Son the greatest gift. And if He was willing to do that, how will He withhold the lesser gifts and graces that we need to be more like Jesus and then ultimately to be fully and finally perfected? Now, because of all that, bedrock, foundation, we have an unshakable fortress of safety in God. So look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So since all of this is true, and, and I think this reaches further back than just 828, but we're going to kind of focus on this at this point. You could, you could go all the way back to chapter 3, or you could go back to chapter 5 and say all of these things. But if this is true, verses 28 to 30, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The way we should not answer the question, and, and some of you, this might be rolling around in your minds right now, where the question is, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? Well, election and predestination and the free will of man. Like, Well, if you're saying this, then, and you've got all these theological questions just spinning in your head. Okay, those are important. If you want to talk about those, we can talk about them later. But let's just follow the text here. What shall we say to this amazing, unstoppable, unshakable, unassailable grace of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? The point is not, you know, to just argue theology in an ivory tower. The, the point is certainty in your soul. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Can anyone defeat God? Can anyone thwart his purposes? No, he is the almighty king of heaven. He is the one who is for you. And he's not just high and mighty. He has a mighty, tender heart of love and compassion. He's not just strong, or his foreness might feel like having the Hulk you know, on your side. Great if you have a battle, but you know, not so much if you're sad and despairing. He's not the most tender person. You know, Hulk, Marvel movies, everybody's tracking the big green guy. Okay? So he's also a father who is tender and a gentle shepherd who cares for his sheep. And all of his might, all of his strength, all of his tender heart is for you. So that's our unshakable fortress built on the bedrock of his eternal purposes, founded upon his limitless, loving generosity at the cross. And so we can see from here that 32 to 39 flesh out that forness. Okay, God is for us. So even though there's all kinds of things that come against us, our sin, our consciences, Satan and his minions, difficult circumstances, difficult people, oppressors, persecutors, all kinds of stuff, a lot more than that, none of it, no one can defeat God and his purposes for our lives. So we're safe and protected 
And here's what we're going to see in the rest of this section. We're safe from condemnation, and we're safe from separation. Okay? So these will go a little bit faster. Verses 33 to 34 first. We're safe from condemnation. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So there is, again, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can damn you. No one can condemn you. If you are in Christ, you are perfectly safe. You are ultimately safe and secure. Your conscience will accuse you, certainly, and that can be the tool of God, certainly, to just lead us to repentance and restoration. Oftentimes, Satan loves to use it because he loves to wag his finger in our face and plague us with guilt that's already been taken care of by Jesus. And we need to hear these verses here. No one can condemn. Other people will criticize you and accuse you and judge you and belittle you. But in the only courtroom that matters, you've already been justified. And if God has justified us, who can reverse that judgment? No one. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And he lives and intercedes for us. So the fiery arrows can fly. They can pound against the, the kind of house of our life. We can fear that it's going to burn the house down. But in reality, there is like an impenetrable force field around God's children. No one can succeed to condemn those that God has justified. He is for us. Who can be against us? So we are safe from condemnation forever because Jesus took it in our place on the cross. So we can be sure of it. And you may face all kinds of frowns, criticism, rejection, persecution in 2019. But if God is for you, no one can ultimately be against you. And so you can face 2019 and each day without fear. And then finally, we're safe from separation. Look at verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the implication there? All that stuff can come on Christians. You're not protected from these things. You're protected through these things. As it is written, for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, which is a quote from Psalm 44 where the psalmist is crying out like, why is this happening to us? Like, you're allowing these things to happen. And so Paul is not like rose-colored glasses or Pollyanna-ish here. He is looking the realities, the harsh realities of life in this world in the face and saying, it is what it is. I'm not sweeping it under the rug or pretending it's not there, but I'm saying, even those things cannot separate you from the love of Christ. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is 
solid bedrock under our feet, this beautiful, solid foundation of God's love for us in Christ, his death and resurrection. There is this just unshakable fortress around us. God is for us and not against us. We can handle the fiery darts because no one can condemn us. And inside that safe haven, there is an unquenchable flame warming us. God's love for us is unquenchable. We cannot be separated from his love. So some really horrible things can wash over us like a flood. I mean, look at that list in verse 35. But none of it can extinguish the flame of God's love for you. And God wants you to be sure of it. So he doesn't promise health, wealth, and safety and comfort here. He also doesn't promise that you won't be a victim in this life. But he does say that he will work all things for good. All these things he turns for your good. He actually turns sufferers and victims into victors, more than conquerors. So precisely through what was intended for your harm, he turns it to good for you. So no one, no thing can successfully be against you. Cancer can come against you this year, and it's got all kinds of threats with it, right? But it can also be a tool in God's hand to actually cause you to cling to Christ all the more and to set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus for your hope to be strengthened, for heaven to be more real, for all these promises and God's nearness to be more real than ever before. So what could be a threat to undermine your faith can actually be turned to strengthen your faith. You can be more than a conqueror through him who loved you. So a critic the same thing. A horrible boss, same thing. A bad marriage, same thing. Underemployment or unemployment, same thing. Debt even. You could be like really afraid of debt in 2019. What if God wants to use this heavy cloud right now to teach you things, to trust him, to shape your future stewardship to cause you to reevaluate all kinds of things, to to trust in him, to just run to him. It just teaches you day in and day out to live by faith and not by fear. Do you see how God can take things that are threats and turn them into tools? Saul served David's faith. We have some of those psalms because he was evading spears. The thorns served Paul's humility and the experience of the sufficiency of God's grace. Luther, Martin Luther, said, I thank my papists because they've turned me into a fairly good theologian. Or that diving accident and how it served Johnny Erickson Tata's faith to, to make her so strong and to make her joy so durable. And there's lots of stories in this room as well.
Or we could think of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50. So, all this stuff that can be against us, God, because he is for us and he is sovereign over all of it, he can turn it so that we are more than conquerors because of his love, because he's for us. And he wants us to be sure of these things. He wants to head, wants to head into this new year and into each day sure of him. All right, this last point quickly. That kind of certainty, that kind of confidence doesn't come magically. Okay? So one final quick word and a plug for the fighter verses for this year. Meditating and praying our way into confidence. Okay? So you can see why if we just slowly start to meditate on God's Word and see all that's there in Romans 8, 28 to 39, it hopefully builds our confidence and our, our, it strengthens our certainty in God. That's what God's Word does. And so we want to be more than conquerors in 2019. We need to be ready to fight the fears that will come, the threats that will come. And so, do you know what this week's verse is? It's in the top of the bulletin. You might have already downloaded the app and started to look at it. It's Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You hear all those I am's and I will's? They're awesome. Do you know, I mean, this is just personal testimony. Do you know how much fear that verse has fought off for just me, let alone all the Christians throughout history? Like how much fear has been fought off by just that verse? Or, or how much certainty has been just built up by these verses in Romans 8? So how important is it for, is for us to meditate on memorization for the sake of meditation so that we have the sword of the Spirit ready at hand at any time, anywhere, because we want a faith that is defiant in the face of threats and fears as we walk forward. So God is for us. And maybe what if Romans 8.31 was your fighter verse? God is for us. And you start thinking about who God is. God is for us. Yes, he is. And I'm not going to doubt that. God is for us. You see? Meditation, you slow down and you just chew on it. And you let it just sink down into your soul and strengthen you from the inside out. God is for us. He's for us. He's for me. Like, what? How did I get in on this? So, the worst that could happen to you in 2019 can't take away the best thing that's ever happened to you or the future that God has planned for you. Can't take Jesus away from you, the love of God in Christ. And so we can walk forward into this new year. We can defy our fears and anxieties, walk boldly into 2019 with God. Let's go with his word. Again, that's encouragement to, to grab these fighter verses like Isaiah 41.10 to fight our fears. The only way that we'll be defeated, ultimately, is if there's something out there that can defeat God. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
And God is for us because of Jesus. So now, let's eat and drink to that. Let's chew on and drink in the mighty grace of God that we might be strengthened for this new week and this new year so that we can head into it without fear. This table says God is for you, for me, for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So if the men who are going to be serving could please come forward, we're going to participate in the table here in just a minute just to say a word of of preparation here for the table. This table is not only for just members of Bethel, okay? But it is only for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for justification. Those who've been made right with God, like these verses even talk about. So if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus as your Savior, we're really glad you're here. Okay, but please just let the elements pass the plate pass as it comes by. There's no shame in that. Um, But even more importantly, we want you to know and trust Jesus as your Savior. So if you'd like to talk to somebody about that, you could mark that on one of those visitor cards or feel free to come talk to me afterwards. But let's eat and drink and chew on and celebrate the body, the broken body and shed blood of Christ that because of Him, God is for us. And no one and no thing can be against us as we head into this new year. Let's pray. Father, you are so great. Your mighty heart and power is so clear in these verses that we deserve for you to be against us. We deserve judgment and condemnation. We deserve rejection. But you instead mercifully gave us your son. And Lord Jesus, you willingly came and laid down your life for us so that God would be for us and not against us. So please, would you cause that to be sweet to us and strengthen us from the inside out so that we are sure of you sure of your grace, sure of your mercy, sure of your foreness for us as we head into this new week and new year. And I pray that this table would be powerful testimony to us and reminder, tangible, tasteable, digestible reminder of all of this grace that's ours in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.